Hi, this is Cale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. So glad you're with me today. Open up your Bible, will you, to Romans chapter 13. We're going to finish off this chapter here, starting with verse 11. St. Paul writes, Besides this, you know what hour it is, how it is full time now for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. (laughs) Okay, as we stop there for a moment, just to make clear, when he says make no provision for the flesh, he's not talking about the human body. He is talking about what's called the sinful nature. And in some English translations of the Bible, that's how it's rendered, the sinful nature. This is the part of us that we still have to fight against even post-baptism. It's called concupiscence in Catholic theology. It's a $5 theological term. And it basically means that it's the after effects of original sin. Even though original sin is taken away at baptism, we still have this tendency to want to go back into the mud and roll around a little bit. And St. Paul says, don't do it. Now, I don't know what you were like when you were younger, when you were a teenager, and maybe you are still a teenager listening. And I think that's great if you're in high school and you're listening to the show. God bless you. It's fantastic. You've got an early start on learning the scriptures. Well, one of the things my dad used to say to me a lot was, you know, like a lot of teenagers, I like to sleep in. It's just kind of our metabolism. It's the way it went on the weekends. Very often he'd, you know, I'd sleep through an alarm and my dad would just kind of barge the door open and say, get up and get dressed. Do you know what time it is? And that's exactly what St. Paul is saying as a good father to his spiritual children. And elsewhere in the New Testament, St. Paul says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He certainly saw himself as a spiritual father. And we see our priests, of course, as spiritual fathers. That's one of the reasons why we call them father, because of St. Paul's words. And of course, uh, St. Paul was really the mentor of St. Luke. So I guess he really could have been saying too to Luke, Luke, I am your father. Well, Star Wars reference there. If I have to explain it, it's too uh, it's too tortured. But none, nonetheless, nonetheless, let's get back to what he's saying here in Romans. And when he says, hey, besides this, besides what? In verse 11, that's everything that he's been talking about to this point. Back in chapter 12, he said, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He was taught, he's, he's got everything he said previously in mind. So he says, you got to fix your thinking, first of all. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then that should translate, it should translate into conduct. It's got to go from head to heart to hands. He says, you've got to clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and behave decently as in the daytime. So conduct is is certainly in view here. That's what we see here when we look at verse 11. Besides this, you know what hour it is, 
how it is full time now for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This this is an idea that um, St. Paul's bringing up, and, and it's this idea of the night and the day contrasting the two, which was very common in the ancient world. But really what he's talking about is something called eschatology, another $5 word that has to do with the eschaton, the, the, the age in which we live, the end of the age. And so we are approaching the end of time. Now, how much actual time in terms of years, days, months, hours, minutes that's going to take, we don't really know. But we do know that we are living in what the Bible calls the last days. And that that last age was really inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And when he says in verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. That's, he's probably got, at least in the back of his mind, this concept of Jesus rising from the dead early in the morning on Easter Sunday. While it was still dark, the sun hasn't come up, but the sun is up. The S-O-N, the Son of God, has risen from the dead. And he's brought the life of the resurrection into this world. So really what you could say is eternity starts now. This is a, this is a huge theme, by the way, in, in the Gospel of John and maybe we'll talk about this in in a couple more minutes, that eternal life starts now. Heaven starts now. In in a sense, hell starts now, too, in this world. If you're living in in, in a manner that is not consistent with the gospel, that's in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're kind of living a hell on earth. And if you're living in union with Christ, living in accord with the commands of the kingdom, you are living the life of heaven right now on earth. Although we've got to fight to do that. We certainly have to, to battle to do that. So, really what, what, what St. Paul is saying here is, you, you've got to understand the present time. This is what he says in verse 11. Understand the time that we're living in. You, you know what hour it is. You should know. So, it starts with the mind. This is what we call orthodoxy. Right belief. Right, you've got to know what the truth is. The orthodox and we're not talking about the Orthodox churches of the East here. We're talking about orthodoxy. G.K. Chesterton wrote a famous book called Orthodoxy. It's right teaching. It's right belief. We have this in the Catholic Church as encapsulated in her creeds and statements of faith. So we've got to know this. This is orthodoxy, right belief. But there's also orthopraxis, right conduct, right living. Are we practicing the faith? Has it gone from our head and gone into our hands and feet. Are we actually living it out? But in the middle, there's the heart. We also have to have orthocardia. We have to have a right heart. We have to be pure in our intentions. We have to be loving God and loving people. So if we can do all this, orthodox, right belief, orthopraxis, right living, and orthocardia, having a right heart, we'll be on the right track. We'll be doing it right when it comes to the Catholic faith. So this is really important here. And so everything he said kind of plays into this up to this point. How we've got to think rightly. We've got to be transformed in our minds. We've got to use our spiritual gifts we've been given for the good of the church. We've got to love people and God sincerely. Yes, we have to pay our taxes and obey the government too. All the stuff that we've been talking about, that, that factors into our understanding of what time it is. And this is the Greek word when he mentions time, kairos. It's the appointed time. It's the appointed hour. 
As a basketball fan, I always think about the Chicago Bulls during their heyday in the 1990s, all those championships. They'd always gather for their pregame huddle. Michael Jordan would lead them. And one of the players would say, what time is it? And they'd all say, game time. Who? Yeah. And that's, that's what time it is right now. It, it's game time. It, it's, it's time to get serious and go after it in the Catholic life. So this is kind of the context here. It's also time to wake up. It's time to get up and get dressed. As he says in verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And this idea of, of dressing appropriately for the Catholic life, if you will, in a spiritual sense, this is a theme that's all throughout the letters of St. Paul. This idea of taking off one set of clothes, putting on another, Ephesians 4.22, 4.25, Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 12, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 14. That's the famous armor of God chapter. He says it a little bit differently than he does here. He says you've got to put on the armor of God. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, we also see this letter, this sort of theme in other writers, James 1, 21, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But he says you've got to take off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, why, why does he say armor of light as opposed to garments of light? You know, it's interesting. We once did a series on the book of Genesis on the Faith Explained program. I believe it's still in the archives there on relevantradio.com. In looking at the beginning chapters of Genesis, the creation of the world, Adam and Eve, some scholars actually hold that before the fall, Adam and Eve were clothed, if you will, in a raiment of light, a garments of light, as it were, which they, which they then lost. But right here, St. Paul says, you got to put on the armor of light. And I think that word armor is intentional because what he's really saying here is that you are in for a battle. This is a battle against the devil, our, our triple enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, an evil alliance, as it were, uh, arrayed in, in battle against us. And, and the most dangerous battle that we fight in the spiritual life is the one that we don't even realize that we're in. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. Story time here. You know, in the 1980s, the Soviet Union had the most effective anti-aircraft system in the world. All kinds of radars, missiles were at the ready, ready to strike any invading craft in the air at any altitude. And of course, the most heavily defended city was Moscow, the capital, Red Square, just outside the Kremlin. And that was, of course, the heart of the communist government of the USSR. It was actually known as the Ring of Steel. There were missile placements that were uh, 10 miles out, 25 miles out, 45 nautical miles out from Red Square. And, and there was, it was just seen to be impenetrable. There's no way an enemy could get through. That's what everybody thought. Until May the 28th, 1987. On that particular day, a 19-year-old German pilot named Matthias Rust, an amateur pilot, I might add, he took off in a single-engine Cessna plane from Helsinki, Finland, and he flew all across Soviet territory, buzzed the Kremlin, just like Maverick and Goose buzzing the tower, and he actually landed his Cessna right in the middle of Red Square, just a few feet 
from Lenin's tomb. How did this happen? In fact, you can Google photos of Matthias Rust posing next to his plane before he was arrested. All, all kinds of townspeople in Moscow actually walked up to him and said, how in the world did you do this? Who are you and how did you get here? They even took pictures with him and had him sign autographs and then the KGB took him away. Well, the government of Russia was absolutely embarrassed. And, and how, how in the world did this take place? It's even more unbelievable when you realize that Matthias Rust didn't make any attempt at trying to be stealth here. He, he didn't try to evade their radar systems. In fact, they knew he was in Soviet airspace hundreds of miles before he actually landed. The Russians scrambled their MiG fighter jets and did flybys of this guy, and, and they said, eh, this guy's nothing to worry about. And they didn't. Even, it didn't even get mentioned in the handoff report between the Leningrad commander and his Moscow counterpart. There's no mention of the Cessna plane. So by the time he got over the city of Moscow, it was too late. There, there was no way to fire at this guy. The, the airspace was restricted. No flights, military or civilian, were, were allowed. And so they just had to sort of helplessly watch this guy land in the very heart of the Soviet Union. How was this possible? How did he slip through the defenses? Well, a lot of Russian generals and military officials were fired on the spot. A total handoff of the regime because of this shocking failure and dereliction of duty. Well, in the same way, in the spiritual life, we are a lot more vulnerable than we think we are. We've all probably known people. I can think of, for example, a couple in my old parish that, I'm telling you, they used to mentor young people. They had the most solid Catholic marriage that you'd ever want to see. Well, that's what everybody thought. And then all of a sudden, they split up. And all of a sudden, the husband had moved to another country. And then all of a sudden, the wife left the Catholic faith, married somebody else, and it's just kind of, they both destroyed themselves spiritually. It, it, it's a shocker. And, and this, this sort of thing happens more than we might like to admit. Uh, religious figures that we might admire, leaders go down in flames for making a bad choice. And their private choices catch up with their public persona relationships, careers at times, the faith shipwrecked, destroyed. It happens all the time, all over the place. And I think the common denominator in a lot of these cases is that we overestimate our own spiritual strength and how much we need to be on guard. That's one of the reasons why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, St. Paul says, let anyone who thinks that he's standing firm, watch out, lest he fall. Because you're setting yourself up for a huge shock if you are not putting on your spiritual armor. So we have to be very, very careful, not careless in the spiritual life. My thanks to Lloyd Stilley for that illustration about the Russian plane. And so this is why we need to put on the armor of light. And we have to be sure that our behavior is in accord with what we say we believe. One of the reasons why to avoid the deeds of darkness, and, and Paul sort of picks up on this theme that was very common in the ancient world. It's common in our world, too. A lot of sin takes place under the cover of darkness, whether it's drunkenness, whether it's sexual debauchery, whether it's thievery, you name it. People don't like to come into the light. The Gospel of John says it well. Men and women don't go into the light because their, their, their deeds are evil. They don't want to be seen. 
That's probably changing now. Some people are so blatant about their sins, they don't care if anyone sees them or not. But we have to be sure that we are living in accord with the light. And what's also intriguing, too, a little, little hint of what's coming here, when St. Paul says, let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. I mean, he's mentioning all these big league sins, and he talks about quarreling and jealousy. Well, he's, he's actually sort of foreshadowing what he's going to talk about in chapter 14. Because in the Roman church, there are all kinds of divisions between people. They're fighting with one another. And this is not good for their witness to the world. So, he says, look, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the sinful nature to gratify its desires. This is one of the reasons why we give people a, a gleaming baptismal robe. You know, just bleached, pure <laughs> Because it's a symbol of putting on Jesus Christ. We have to be as Christ wherever we go. We have to be Christians, little Christ, WWJD, like those old bracelets used to say. And so we've got to really live as Jesus would live in our particular situations and not following our, our, our merely human impulses in our ethics, in our morality. But there's also this other idea that when he's talking about the day is very close. The night is far gone. He's not just talking about living in an appropriate manner. He's also talking about the return of the Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord. That is creeping ever closer. And like I said before, we, no matter how many years it takes, no matter how many millennia it might take, we got to be ready because the day that we pass away, that is the day of the Lord for us. He's coming for us, uh, hopefully to take us home. In the book of Obadiah, now I'm sure you all do your morning reading in the book of Obadiah, it says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So there's really no way to escape this. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it says, in that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks, I will tear off their bonds. In other words, the Lord's going to finally set us free. Well, that day of the Lord in the Old Testament becomes the day of Christ, the day of Christ Jesus in the New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, Lord was only used to describe God. So it's another way of saying Jesus is God. And when he returns as God the Son, that's when it's really going to be in play. That's when eternal life is going to be known to everybody. It's here. It's now. But again, don't forget, eternal life really starts this moment. Even though Christ hasn't returned yet, that, that powerful second coming. When you are living in accord with the gospel, you are living the life of eternity now. And when you're rejecting it, when you are living as if you're spiritually asleep, you're not living the life of heaven. You're living the life of the other place where we don't want to go. So let's make our conduct match our creed, our belief match our behavior. That's really what St. Paul is saying right here. Well, in our next session, we'll look at chapter 14 of Romans. Hope you'll join me then. Now it's time to open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's do it. Okay, as we begin our mailbag Q&A segment on Faith Explained, I want to remind you that you can send me your question. I'll try to get it on air. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. You can also try me on Twitter. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. Try to get your question to me that way. 
And this question comes via email and it comes from Alan in Atlanta, Georgia, who's listening on the relevant radio app. And he asks the question, hi, Kay, I've got a question about the temptation of Jesus in the gospel. Did the devil actually know that Jesus was God? That's actually an, a really intriguing question, Alan, a really intriguing question. And it's actually not as, as clear cut as people think. People, I think, just naturally assume that, the, of course, the devil knows that Jesus is divine. That's why he's trying to tempt him. Not necessarily. In fact, um, I read an article by uh, John Cavadini from, from Notre Dame. The early church writer Origen, and he talked about the divine mystery of the marriage of Mary, ever virgin, and St. Joseph. And this is what Origen said. And this is a quote from Origen here. He said, quote, I found an elegant statement in the letter of a martyr. I mean Ignatius, the second bishop of Antioch after Peter. During a persecution, he fought against wild animals at Rome. He stated this. Mary's virginity escaped the notice of the ruler of this age. It escaped his notice because of Joseph and because of their wedding, end of quote. That's an intriguing quote. Now, obviously, Origen is referring to St. Ignatius of Antioch, one of my favorite saints of all time, who was martyred in the Roman Colosseum in the gladiator fights. He was thrown to the wild beasts, uh, the bishop of Antioch. But, but he was a disciple of the apostle John, Ignatius. He learned from the guy who was right next to Jesus. Unbelievable stuff. But that's an interesting quote from, from Origen that Mary's virginity escaped the notice of the ruler of this age. Now, this, the ruler of this age, obviously, is a way of referring to the devil. Now, in Cavadini's article, he kind of expands on this a little bit. He basically says that, all right, Origen keeps thinking about this, keeps pondering the mystery of St. Joseph. And because he's there, because he's Mary's husband, the devil does not suspect that the Savior has actually taken on a body. He, the, the devil doesn't think the incarnation actually happened because of St. Joseph. He's thinking this child is just their natural child that they had together. And then Origen kind of connects all this with what St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. This is what Paul says. We speak wisdom among the perfect, but not the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of the rulers of this age. They are being destroyed. We speak God's wisdom hidden in a mystery. None of the rulers of this age knows it. If they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. So that's, that's really interesting. And so Cavadini says that this is part of the wisdom of God, the marriage of Mary and Joseph, the logic of the incarnation. He calls it the logic of God's philanthropia. It's a logic of foolishness at one level because it's invisible to the ruling powers. It's invisible to the evil spirits. Why? Because it doesn't make sense to them. It's foolishness. It's not wisdom. And so Origen basically said that without St. Joseph, the devil might have suspected a more than human origin for Jesus. And I thought, well, hold, hold on here. <laughs> this might be God in the flesh here. So the, the, the evil rulers of this age, not only the political powers, people like Pilate and, and, and Caiaphas, but 
they're almost demonic backup, if you will, or kind of orchestrating things as puppet masters. They never would have tried to do this if they if they thought that the incarnation was real. So this is this is a really intriguing thought. So Origen actually says that the devil, when he tempted Jesus, did not know who he was. And Jesus actually doesn't reveal his identity to him explicitly. And so Origen says that that really that is part of the temptation to reveal his identity. The devil's trying to get him to reveal who he is prematurely. And had they known that his identity, the rulers of this world would never have crucified the Lord of glory, wouldn't have tempted him either. Why? Because this is God. You know, we, we're powerful, but not as powerful as him. He's going to smash us. So Jesus does not pull rank, if you will. That's how Cavadini puts it. That's a temptation in itself, right? Jesus lives and grows, struggles and wrestles with the temptations that everybody has to deal with. And he is, in fact, Origen calls him the great wrestler. You know, Jesus, who, forget about Hulk Hogan here, right? he's the great wrestler. He defeats the rulers of this age, not by exempting himself from temptation, but by taking it on. Conquering not by the abstract power of rank and identity. It's basically, he could have said, I'm God, and you're defeated. Boom. And, and everybody's sins are forgiven. We can all go home. But he didn't do it that way. In fact, he, he, he took on a real battle, a real fight, as Cavadini puts it. And he says St. Joseph is very much a part of that wrestling. And uh, Origen had to reply to this guy named named uh, Celsus. And Celsus uh, was an anti-Christian, didn't believe in, in the divinity of, of Jesus. And Celsus basically says, there's no way Jesus can be God because his own dad couldn't even take care of him. He had, he had, to, he had to go into Egypt. He had to hide. You know, that, that's, that's not something a real God would do. Come on, it's ridiculous. But Origen says, no, 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 no. This is, this is part of how we know that the incarnation actually happened in history. God doesn't pull rank. He, he doesn't um, just say, okay, I, I am the God man, the God baby at this point, and, and everybody else, I'm just going to show my power in a miraculous way, and everybody who's trying to seek my life, you can get lost. He, he doesn't do that. He, he allows the flight to Egypt to happen. This is part of the great wrestler, part of his motif, part of his plan all along. This is a great, great mystery, and uh, I just think it's really, really powerful. Okay, so that, that's a great, great question. So thank you, Alan, for writing that in. And if you have a question, uh, you can also send it to me. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, or find me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And you can catch me later today, live on Relevant Radio on The Kale Clark Show, 5 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Make sure you share the Faith Explained podcast, the Kale Clark Show podcast, and all our great shows with a friend. You can do it easily through the app, so make sure you go download it today. Until next time, I'm Kale Clark. God bless you.